Hello everyone, it's Precious Pioneer, and thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Precious the Foodie. Today, we're continuing our vacation in Portland, Oregon to chat with Jen, founder of Women Conquer Business. In light of the pandemics of COVID-19 and racism that has spread across our country, today we'll be talking about racial disparities and allyship. We can do so much together through kindness and actively supporting all people in our communities. We'll also cover Portland's odd obsession with cheese and COVID's impact to mom-and-pop shops. Are they trending to all get buried and close their businesses for good? Or will they pivot and rise from the ashes? I don't know. (laughs) I guess you'll have to wait and see. Hi, welcome to Precious the Foodie Podcast, the show that will uncover stories through palettes and memories. My name is Precious Pioneer, your host. I'm a chef, a creative, and a foodie. I'm meeting people all over the world using food as a medium to highlight truths into bite-sized pieces. Hi, my name is Jen McFarland. I'm a small business owner. My business is called Women Conquer Business. I spent 25 years working in the corporate world and I realized that the people that I really love to help are women, people of color, and rural communities who need help with leadership, project planning, and digital marketing. Um, I also have a weekly podcast because I just think it's really fun to communicate and share in an environment that doesn't cost anything. And I'm really, really happy to be here. Wow, I'm so happy to have you. So I know that you just said that you actually help a lot of people of color and women and target those specific groups. Is that something that you always grew up wanting to do and become? Or what kind of led you into that mission or calling? I would say that a few different things actually led me into that. First of all, when I was in the Peace Corps, you know, I... I, I had a lot of experiences that were really fantastic. And then I had some experiences that weren't as fantastic. And that was what led me to realize that as a white woman in the United States, I have a lot of privilege. Now, this was like 15, 16 years ago. So we weren't really talking about white privilege, at least not as much. So I didn't even know about that term. And when I wasn't treated as well in Kazakhstan, which is where I lived for two years, I was really angry and I didn't realize how much of that also went on in my own country. And after two years, I realized that my anger was really that I had never been treated that way before. So when I returned home, I, you know, and in the time during those two years, I realized that that wasn't the case in my own country, that we were treating people, they just didn't look like me. We were treating people poorly. So when I returned home, part of the mission of Peace Corps is to share your experiences. And then I just added on to that the mission of learning as much as I could about equity and doing anything that I could to help. And so for the last, you know, and I did that um, working at the city of Portland and being on the equity committee and trying to really like make change at the policy level at a large city. And then when I left my work there as a project manager and started my own business, I really wanted to focus on some of the some of the communities and environments that are largely forgotten and overlooked, which do tend to be, you know, women and people of color. We just don't have the same access to resources. We don't have as many people in, say, the venture capital area to get capital. Banks don't find us as attractive because we don't have that same background or maybe we don't look right to really invest in. And we don't have maybe the same 
family structures that we came from that would, or education that would tell people that we could be successful. And I have a lot of access to tools and things just from my years of work that I thought Mm -hmm. could really benefit these communities. And so I do focus on those communities because of just kind of this evolution of realizing that as much as I was helping, you know, large projects, I really loved the work I did in Peace Corps and just listening to people and hearing what it is that they needed and then helping them get it. And then why not help the people that I'm most passionate about helping? Right. It's so interesting that you brought up white privilege and your experience kind of led into what you do now. With everything going on with the current events, I feel like a lot of people are coming, getting woke, I suppose, and coming to this realization. (laughs) And it's very interesting because I am, well, I'm a biracial female, but I am a woman of color. And so it's just very interesting to kind of see America turn upside down with this deep realization that we have like a class society almost. And some mm-hmm. people are definitely treated completely different solely based on the color of their skin in relation to white people. And so I I was just curious on how you got to that place because to realize and recognize white privilege and then to do something about it. Like you are, you're very passionate about what you do and you use that understanding to transition such a common adversity and you use it to empower other people. But that requires stepping back and facing your internal feelings about that to grow a deeper understanding of how society plays a role in that. And so I was wondering if you had anything to say, any things that you've face to grow or things that helped you grow understanding to be able to do the work that you do or any advice for anyone who is listening who has maybe understood the white privilege that they have but don't know where to go from there or what to do with it. I will say that one of the you know in the situation where I was in where the light really came on for me like I said it was it was a long time ago at this point Mm -hmm. part of it was that I was in a place where I didn't have internet. I was far away from all, you know, I mean, I was out of the country. (laughs) So um, I had a lot of time alone with my thoughts and a lot of, you know, and I was there with my husband, but, you know, I did have a lot of time alone with my thoughts and a lot of time for quiet contemplation. And it was in this quiet contemplation that like when I was being treated different and the anger, I really wanted to like lean into that. And so I would say that if you're in a developed country like the United States, you may not feel like you have time for all of that quiet contemplation where you don't have TV or the internet. You know, you might feel overloaded by all this information that you're getting. I would say that when you feel anger or discomfort about some of these conversations, and I'm speaking as a white person to my white cohort, (laughs) you know, (laughs) if you feel anger and frustration about these conversations or discomfort, you really need to spend some time to really recognize where that is coming from and what that what that really means. Because sometimes as white folks, we feel uncomfortable because it's forcing us into uh, some uncomfortable truths about ourselves, you know, those unconscious biases that we have, or maybe it's opening up the realization of our own mistakes or the inequities of the world, and it can it can be difficult. I think we really need to take the time to learn about ourselves, and by understanding and having that self-awareness about ourselves, 
it really is what allows us then to be allies and be advocates and grow in another way. And I think that too often we look to other people to help us and educate us or tell us the right way when sometimes we just need to really have that conversation with ourselves and then seek out the education that we personally need from trusted sources, which by the way, is not you know, something on the 24-hour news cycle or social media <laughs> and right. really dive into like learning some things. This stuff can happen pretty rapidly. You don't need years and years. In fact, I'm not advocating for that at all. I'm saying, you know, learn as much about yourself as you can, then go out and educate yourself. And then as you begin to do that, you know, have those important conversations where you begin to, when you see things, you know, say something and when you see that there's like a cause or a group that's really supporting, you know, anti-racist, you know, whether it's policy at the policy level or contributing to say bail funds to help people who are protesting right now stay out of jail because we know that disproportionately things happen to people of color when it comes to bail and time in jail and pleading mm -hmm. out that, you know, when we know about all of these things, then it's about, you know, using that education in a way for good, you know, and contributing right. to people who are helping the cause. So even if you don't know what to do, if you have just a little bit of money here or there, you can make a really big impact on what's going on right now. Right. I think, I think you touched on a wide scope of things because at least with me growing growing up, I come from a military background. So I actually have had such a sheltered life in some regard, you know, living on a military base, you know, being protected all the time is a very different association with police officers and everything that a lot of my mm -hmm. peers um, have experienced. And so it's definitely something that I also had to learn ironically, you know, it's from just, a, I was able to see the world from both sides. And so I think that you brought up a really good point that oftentimes the way that we interact with other people is just a subconscious bias. And so some of the racism and things that I have faced is usually passive things that are in the day-to-day -day of whether it's a workplace or getting a job or all these different things are just associated or my intelligence especially is just associated with the color of my skin. You know, I had a few guidance counselors who would realter all of my schedules to take me out of AP classes and stuff growing up because they just assumed that I, it was a mistake or that I wasn't going to college and all these different, you know, profiling issues that kind of happen. And I think that small changes of just stepping up in a workplace and correcting people or just, you know, be advocating when you know that something's not right is just a really good start, even if you aren't really sure about what to, what to do or where to go. I think that is just fixing little small things that you see in your day-to-day, -day, like inappropriate jokes, you know, things like that, I think is a really good start that doesn't feel so aggressive, I suppose. Absolutely. I, I think that any any little thing that you can do to help another person, anytime that you yourself are corrected, it's not meant to offend you. It's actually meant to help educate you so that next time you can be that advocate. And I think that a lot of times, well, I mean, you know, people don't like to be corrected and yet, you know, we do it all the time. We help other people all the time with, you know, altering their behavior in one way or another. Race is certainly one of those areas where we need to do that because bias is just baked in and it's mm -hmm. just into the policies, into so many different things. And so when we 
then we are able to identify it and see it, then we have a responsibility to take action. Now, taking action isn't always easy, but you know, in life, anything that's really worth doing is probably not that easy. And this <laughs> is absolutely worth doing because a lot of times people look at the world as like a zero sum game. And that means all or nothing, win or lose. Equity and, and race aren't like that. When we begin to rise and help one group in the case of equity, then we all begin to rise together. This isn't about winners and losers. This is about the fact that we've had a group that has been, you know, discriminated against for a very long time. And broadly, people of color and specifically African Americans, that when we begin to care for each other on a deeper level and begin to see people truly for who they are and what they can provide, that is a net positive for not only the individual, but for the communities and for the broader range of, of humanity. And in that case, it means that we all begin to rise together. And mm -hmm. so one of the biggest things that people can do is begin to see that every small step of the way, every change that we make that's a net positive, it actually makes everybody better and greater. Yeah, I completely agree. Going back to your job and can you walk me through what your typical day-to-day -day would look like? Well, I guess quarantine's a little bit, you know, a damper, but <laughs> despite all of that. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, a lot of things. So I have my own podcast. So I do like a weekly show and that takes up quite a bit of time. During the quarantine, the focus kind of shifted, you know, when, when you help people that I do sometimes when the economy crashes that's a big that's a big deal for a, a small business owner so i really have been shifting a lot of my effort into content i have a small monetization for my podcast and i've been sending things off to a company that helps uh, monetize my show and then yeah it's pretty cool and then slowly people started coming back it's just taken some time for uh, people kind of get into the quarantine new normal. Right now, my husband is working in the other room. And so we kind of have like dueling video calls going <laughs> on <laughs> throughout the day. I love, I love working. I mean, you know, my dog is in heaven right now because everybody's home. And I, th I feel like I am too, to an extent, because, you know, I just love having the family around all the time. That said, I'm in Portland, Oregon, and the rain will not stop and we can't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. So I'm feeling very cooped up and I spend a lot of time on video calls with either leading, you know, networking groups or meeting with potential clients or checking in with friends. And sometimes I get really tired of um, being in front of the computer and, and being on video calls, mm -hmm. but it's all great. And so, yeah, I mean, I've kind of gotten into this new normal, you know, before a lot of the work I would like to do is meet with people in person. And then I was doing some video conversations and right. now it's all video all the time and that's I'm getting a little tired of that. I feel like video calling um, takes a little bit of like more effort than I guess if you were to re meet up with regular people because you have to be a little bit more animated so expressions can be seen or felt through a screen you know because like if you were to have coffee with someone and have a conversation you can I feel like you could be a little bit more relaxed than if you're on a video call you have to be a little bit more like extra cheery or extra, you know, just so they can, that's getting portrayed through the screen. And so it's a little bit draining, at least from my experience. 
Yeah. And well, and for me, yeah, I mean, I totally agree. Like they get like your full body language. So they know if you're like listening and they know, you know, like if they're (laughs) your person. And then also I might be alone in this, but I also hate that I can look up and see my own face all the time. That really (laughs) bothers me because I'm like, oh my gosh, like then I become way more self-conscious and then I'm like, I'm sorry, what, what, what are we talking about here? (laughs) You know, because I kind of lose focus. And I think that, I think it's all of the things. I think it's exactly what you said about having to be more animated because you're on video. And then it's also like the self-awareness of like, what, oh my gosh, what am I doing right now? Did I, (laughs) what did I do? You know? It's right. it's horrible. And I think that there are other people who've done like all kinds of studies about like Zoom fatigue and stuff. For me, it's very real. And and it's raining so much that I don't get to go outside between calls and like play with my dog and stuff. So right. that's been a little bit crazy. I can't wait until everybody keeps telling me, Jen, you know, Portland, it rains until you know, around 4th of July. And I'm like, no, <laughs> <They're> like, yes. <laughs> and I think it's just that I'm, I'm feeling very stuck in here. <laughs> right. Rain definitely gives you a different energy too. I don't know about you, but for me, it makes, it makes me a little bit lethargic. It makes me want to just take a nap, drink a hot chocolate or something. And that isn't necessarily the right mindset to be when you, you're working. <laughs> and so it's just a different, definitely a different vibe, especially when you're cooped up. It is a blessing in the sense that, yes, you spend time with all your family. And I definitely relate to the whole dog thing. We have our dog here too. And she's just like confused. But then also she's a little bit annoyed because there's a lot of us. There's five of us. And so she just kind of moseys from room to room. She's like, oh my God, everybody's so loud. Like, cause you know, that's usually their nap time throughout the day. (laughs) So it's just a very, we're all stressed, I think a little bit. Yeah, well, I mean, Booker's a cuddle bug. So he's kind of like, why isn't anybody cuddling with me right now? Like, it's <laughs> totally about nap time. And, you know, and, and it's true when it's raining like this. I'm like, why can't I have some hot chocolate and go watch Disney Plus downstairs? I mean, right. <laughs> do I have to make money today? And then I'm like, yeah, I should probably focus yes, on business. <laughs> probably, I guess, you know. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, what is, what is it like? Okay, so in Portland, Oregon, I know that you said it rains a lot, especially during this time. But I wanted to know what the food scene is like over there because I know it's a little bit known for its quirky personality and also having like the weirdest different food trends. And so I kind of wanted to know what that experience is like. Uh, where where are you located at? Um, right outside of DC. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a lot different than DC. My in-laws are, are in DC. So yeah, Portland's food experience, you know, and I, I'm with COVID-19, I'm super worried about it. Like I've read multiple articles about how they're they're worried that this could be the end of like the mom and mom and pop mm-hmm. restaurant because it's, you know, the margins are so thin for restaurants that they're really struggling with, you know, spacing yeah, people out. Sure. Like Multnomah County where I am, we're still not phase one open yet. So like there's no sitting in restaurants even outside right now here. And it's really been devastating for particularly, I would say, fine dining, like anybody who can't really do delivery. And some of the most popular places, you know, I, I have been closed the whole time. You know, the, the mm-hmm. you know, the Southern comfort kind of food or, you know, all of that kind of thing. The food cart industry that we have here has has been going okay. Like a lot of people can, you can space out and like go order from food carts. So a lot of what we have that's super um, unique in terms of cuisine is a lot of our food carts are not like a typical food cart. Maybe you're not getting anything fancy, but here in Portland, when we had the economic downtrend, 
in you know the Great Recession in 2008-2009, we had a lot of open mm-hmm. lots that had nothing on them. They were just like dirt lots or parking lots, and the, they were intended to be developed, but there was no money for development. And then we had a lot of restaurants close. So we had a lot of chefs. (laughs) And so the two combined and we had all these fantastic food carts that were run by chefs. And so you can go in terms of the food scene, you can go to like some of these different cart pods all around town and have some of the finest cuisine, you know, fine dining (laughs) experience out of a cart for like 10 bucks, you know, which is pretty phenomenal. And then now some of those some of those carts have been moving into brick and mortar. And who knows if, you know, if they're going to be able to to all come back. But yeah, you can get anything here, anything from like paleo to some of those really crazy like like cheese like it's like grilled cheese sandwiches with hamburger so you make they make like a what is it called it's like a grilled cheese sandwich and then like a hamburger patty and then a grilled cheese sandwich hamburger patty it's like it's like a big mac with like grilled cheese sandwiches you know Um, and they have all these websites intense it's really intense and uh, i think they call it the double cheeses that's what they call it so <laughs> and I'm just trying I, to envision what this looks like. Yeah, I could I could probably send you some some links if you wanted to post them like in the show notes or something for some of the things we have. So sure. there's all kinds of creativity around food. And then we have like a lot of like really great international pods. Like we have one just down the road from where I'm living in Portland, run by the Portland Mercado. They got a bunch of grants and funding to help Latin American and South American business owners and they they fund all different kinds of businesses out of it, this incubator but they also have like pod of like food trucks where you can go and just like basically just you know you can go to Colombia and you can go to Mexico and you can go to Venezuela you know so it's like all of these really great all of these great different places from you know Latin America and South America and then you know that you're also helping small business owners so the cart that I really liked is now a restaurant down the street from us here where I live. So they've kind of outgrown the cart, you know, in the incubator program. And now they're, they have like multiple locations in town, you know, and then you just hope that they're going to make it, you know, through mm-hmm. this whole economic time. Yeah. And then I also live in the Jade or next to the Jade district. So we also have an organization called Apano who helps all of the Asian Pacific businesses in the area. And part of that is also helping some of the restaurants. So unfortunately, my favorite dim sum restaurant is not going to be reopening after everything opens up. But hopefully Mm -hmm. there will be other ones that will pop up after that because, well, first of all, dim sum is awesome. And second of all, (laughs) we do have a large Asian Pacific cohort of people who live here. So I'm sure that people are going to be wanting some dim sum around here. Yeah, for sure. What really stuck out to me for is that Quarantine definitely has impacted all of the restaurants. As a chef, like my restaurant's still closed, you know, and so I've been super unemployed and it's just really crazy to see how the hospitality industry has kind of been destroyed almost completely because of this. And you're right. Everything that you said is so true when it comes to restaurants. Most restaurants survive check to check or month to month. And it's not like there was a lot of leasing forgiveness or anything like that. And even the small business loan that was released, not everyone had access to it. And so these mom and pop shops are 
super suffering and I really hope that they can sustain themselves over this long, but we don't we don't even know how long that will be for. And even though some did transition and pivot to take out, nobody's entering dining rooms or anything like that. So if that's not your business model, then it's really hard to adjust. And especially a lot of these mom and pop shops didn't have an online website or anything to kind of get you know, Uber Eats or anything to kind of get the ground moving, you know, for them. So it's just very interesting to see what we'll make of this. But I'm really almost a little bit excited because at the same time, it was, I think it was about time to remodel the business model behind what restaurants are and what they could be because I feel like everything has definitely upgraded a little bit, but restaurants have kind of stayed the same in relation to their business model. And so I also read a lot of articles and it's just interesting to see. They said that we're going to have to find new and creative ways to feed people. And it's like a new Mm -hmm. chapter for us. And so that leaves me a little bit optimistic to know that I have lived, you know, before and I saw what restaurants look like and to see what they will evolve into by the time I'm ready to open up one. So it's just, it's, it's, I'm on the edge of my seat to see kind of how this plays out because fine dining, they're really evolving as well into what they're uh, providing for people. Cause you know, usually it's the ambiance, it's the service and what people pay all that money for, you know, Mm -hmm. but they've kind of adjusted and made these really gourmet takeout experiences that because usually when you go to those restaurants it's for a celebration or something intimate or a date or something like that and they made it like a home cooking process with all of the different courses and these little boxes and they'll with Mm -hmm. very clear instructions of it's like what is it those freshly and those subscription models but super gourmet you know but famous chefs telling you okay don't forget to stick this in the oven for 400 degrees you know it's like so cute but you gotta do what you got to do to survive and it's just so interesting how innovative all of these restaurants are becoming my friend wanted to support a local restaurant and so that she bought her groceries from them like a gallon of milk a few pounds of vegetables and things like that you know they're getting really creative on you know what they can do to just make a little bit of money to get by Absolutely. And one of favorite restaurant in town is called Bergerac. It's a French restaurant in town. And they're doing that exact model that you were just describing where you can order and then go pick up and and make it and they'll give you all of the instructions. And I think some of it is already cooked and some of it's not, mm-hmm. you know, and so they're really trying to help people, you know, have those celebrations, continue to have them at home and continue to make food in a way that is sustainable. The problem with things like DoorDash and Uber Eats and all of that is they take such a big cut Mm -hmm. that it's also making it very difficult for restaurants to survive. So we've gone back old school, 1980s, like we're calling the restaurant if we eat out and picking it up whenever possible, if they're Mm -hmm. allowing it because of how how little the restaurant seems to be making if they go with a traditional delivery service. So it's it's a a very, they take a lot and, and it's and and can you trust Uber Eats when <laughs> when they say here give this it'll go directly to the restaurant you know it, yeah. it's a very interesting model that we're living in where it seems like technology makes it easier for the consumer but it may not actually be helping the business owner mm-hmm. as much one of the Chinese restaurants in town here needed help because their Google My Business was taken over. Um, by DoorDash and kind of Mm. hijacked, which is a thing that happens. So Google My Business is like when you look up, for example, like Chinese food near me, 
you know, and then mm-hmm. there's that box of like whatever restaurant it is that's nearest put put out by Google. Well, mm-hmm. there have been cases where like Yelp and DoorDash and people like that are like taking over the phone number and it's actually being routed to DoorDash instead of, or Grubhub, I think is actually the right. one, routed to Grubhub instead of going directly to the restaurant. So you might even be thinking that you're paying, you're calling the restaurant and you're actually going through a service that then is going to take like 30% off the top or 40%. I've actually seen order. that. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And, it's, and it's sad because these restaurants need every penny that they could get. They already had to lay off over half of their staff just mm-hmm. to stay afloat. And so with 40 million unemployed currently, I think that we just really need to be, I'm glad that everyone kind of is coming together and supporting local businesses because the businesses that were deemed essential, all the fast food restaurants and all of those things, mm-hmm. they will definitely survive after this. They have the budget. They, they could afford to shut down one of their million of restaurants, you know, and that's like McDonald's and all the Chick-fil-A, all that kind of stuff. And so it's very uh, refreshing to see the community community come together just to keep their favorite coffee shop, to keep their favorite restaurant in their town. Well, and and hopefully, hopefully, hopefully it'll continue, right? I mean, in places like Portland is such a part of the fabric of who we are. Like, you know, you would think like coffee, I can't even tell you like, so Starbucks announced that they were closing like 400 shops and 200 in Canada. So it's like 400 stores in North America, half of which are in Canada. And my entire like Twitter feed and Instagram, like all these Portlanders were like, good riddance, get out of here. And then they were like, dead stock is better. Or, you know, like whatever their favorite coffee shop was, you know, they're like in there, like doing that. And and I would like to think, and it's not to say that I'm anti big business. It's to say, like, I would hope that like other places would be like that too, which is to say like, you know, cheering, cheering for small business for the little guy, because sometimes their coffee's better, or sometimes mm-hmm. whatever they're serving is is filling a need that maybe you don't get from, you know, Burger King. <laughs> and, you right. know, so you no. want, you want the little guys to hang out and make it. For sure. And I, I think I got, I captured I I felt that sort of energy. I went to San Francisco this past summer and they actually have policies in place where they, there's not a, I think there's in the whole entire city, there's only one or two fast food restaurants. There's no Mm -hmm. Walmart, there's no corporations or anything. And that's how the people like it. They will only bring in small businesses, local businesses, people in the community starting their own business. They will not let any corporation kind of take over or allow it to be built in their city. You know, there's like policies in place because that's just what the people don't want. And to walk down the street in San Francisco is just so interesting because every shop is has its own character. It's their own. You can tell there was a put, there was a lot of love put into each plant shop, to each coffee shop or ice cream parlor. It felt so unique to be a part of like a town where everybody has their own creativity in each little place, you know? Yeah, Um, totally. And and yeah. And Portland is like that to an extent. I would say the biggest place where you'll experience that in Portland. And I think the Austin airport is the same way is the Portland airport. Like you, they have prohibited people from charging more for goods and services there than they would outside of the airport. And then mm -hmm. every place, every store, every restaurant, everything is like a local business. So it's, it's wonderful because you can go and like kind of get part of the flavor of Portland at the airport. So even if you're just stopping through and then, you know, we, we don't exactly have, we do have some big box stores in town, but it's not very many. Mm-hmm. It's just not a lot. 
I love, I love that. I think it's just a completely different energy. You feel a sense of community when you know that your neighbor or whoever owns the shop. I feel like there's a little bit more personal, personal attachment to those places. Oh, absolutely. I was going to ask you one last food question. What would you say is one thing in Portland, like one unique food item or something that you just really can't get anywhere else? Oh, wow. One unique food item that you just can't get anywhere else. Oh, I got to think about that for a second. Oh. oh, my head is like so flooded with everything. Do you mean like a <laughs> like a like a type of food or? I mean, something that's super normal to everyone who lives in Portland. Like, oh, yeah, like this is the place you go or this is the food here. But anybody who came would would just not understand without any context or without having been there. Food experience, a place, a person that everybody knows, you know? Oh, wow. That's... Give me the inside scoop. <laughs> oh, wow. That's a really good question. Oh, man. There's so many places that are like that. You know, like we have a restaurant that has swings in it so you can like sit down and you just think it's a bar and then you walk in and like that's called Eastburn and you just sit down and there's swings there. I think that if you ever come to Portland, you absolutely cannot judge a book by its cover. You know, one of our old old time favorite restaurants here that's been here forever is called El Bistro Montage and it's under a bridge on the east side of Portland <laughs> and if you walk up to it before they open there's like hordes of people waiting outside because it's one of the best places in town you know and you get like great jambalaya and like southern food but if you looked at the outside you'd be like no I don't want to go here <laughs> you know <laughs> but it's like wonderful and it's been there since like the 90s when I first lived here you know you know, there's all kinds of places like that here where you just walk up and you're like, this is, you know, this is nothing, Different, you know, yeah. this, this can't possibly be as good as people say it is, you know. I would also say that you, you can come here and think that you know where to go for restaurants and things like that, but you, you actually have to come here and like talk to Portlanders because, you know, we see all of the people waiting outside of certain restaurants and we're like, oh God you know, these are all tourists. Like we know, like, because we know what's covered like on TV and then like, like the place to get donuts is not the place that you see on the food network. <laughs> the really good donut places are like a couple of other places, you know? So when you come here to visit, you know, don't look on the outside, you know, of the building because the food inside might be really good. And don't, just go by your guidebook, talk to people who live here and we will tell you, you know, absolutely buy your books at Pals. It's lovely. You know, that's going to be in your guidebook, but you know, you don't have to go to Voodoo Donuts just because everybody talks about it. You know, there's also <laughs> Pips and Blue Star who are, who have better donuts and less marketing, you know? So mm -hmm. it's kind of like this interesting mix of like where to go and what to do. And I think like most places, you know, you want the local connection, because That's we'll true. tell you places that that you're never going to find unless you know somebody. Right. I, I, I definitely agree with that. You got to find where the locals eat. And I think that's where you'll find the real food because you live there. So you know the best places, you know the best yeah. coffee shops, and it might not be on your number one best places to look. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I definitely agree with that strategy. Um, oh, and to answer your question... If you're in Portland, the food that we're really good at making, like we make all kinds of really fantastic food, but it rains here a lot. So you really have to trust us with our comfort foods. Ooh. Absolutely have to trust us with our comfort foods. So 
if somebody says, oh, you need to go to this restaurant, they have really good mac and cheese, go to that restaurant and get the mac and cheese. Because we have mastered things like mac and cheese. And you'll find (laughs) mac and cheese on a lot of menus here with like different different flavors of it, you know? And Uh it's because when you live someplace that is cold and rainy, (laughs) (laughs) we need that comfort food. And and for a lot of people around here, it does seem to be mac and cheese, but you can get like, I've had it panini style where they put it on a panini maker. I've Mm. had it, you know, so many different ways with like all kinds of fantastic cheeses. So I would say that like, in terms of coming here for something that you'd be like mac and cheese, like it's not craft mac and cheese if you come here. And somebody <laughs> says to have it. <laughs> so that's kind of the specialty in this weird way. But like that would never be in a book anywhere. And I would have I, if friends hear this when they hear it, they're going to argue with me about that. But it is kind of a to me, that's a weird thing to like come and see mac and cheese on so many menus. Yeah, no, that's it. That's you know? that's the answer I was looking for. Comfort food. Trust you with your comfort food. I like that. Next time I, I, I'll go, I'll have to definitely check out the mac and cheese just solely based on your recommendation and also donuts and coffee (laughs) to be real honestly I'll probably try a little bit of everything um yeah coffee's pretty fantastic here don't overlook that (laughs) we drink a lot of it here (laughs) something special that I do with all of my guests on this show as we come to a close if the listener didn't have an opportunity to listen to anything that we have said this far or anything in our conversation, what would you say as your last few words, your mic drop, your peace out, I'm leaving, your uh, two cents, what would uh, you have to say? I would have to say, come to Portland, Oregon, visit it sometime, take part in like all of the unique foods that we have here. It's wonderful. It's lovely. And honestly, just, just be kind to each other, love each other. It, it is about listening and learning and and being loving above all else. And I think that we can get through all of these hard times, whether it is COVID-19 and supporting each other or whether it's overcoming all of this race justice um, or injustice that we've had in our world. We need to see each other as people and understand that not everyone is treated the same and fix that do everything we can to fix that. Awesome. Thank you so much. Also, where can the listeners find you? Can you shout out your podcast again and also your social media links so they could reach out to you? Sure. My business is called Women Conquer Business. It is online at Women Conquer Biz. That's all of my social handles are at Women Conquer Biz. And my podcast is called Women Conquer Business, available on all (laughs) major platforms. You know, that's That's how easy it is when everything lines up. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. I'll make sure to leave it in the show notes for you guys. Thank you again, Jen, for being a guest on the show. It was such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everyone, for tuning into this week's podcast show. If you enjoyed it or got any value, please leave a review and tell me what you think. You can find the reviews in Apple Podcasts scrolling all the way down on the profile page. This would really help to support me and the creation of these podcast shows. But if you want to keep up with the show, you can find me on Instagram at Precious the Foodie or other content on YouTube at Precious Pioneer. If you have any ideas for future shows, don't be afraid to shoot me an email or DM me on those platforms. All of the information will be listed in the show notes. Thank you guys again. Your support means so much to me. But as always, live life with love and love food with life. Bye guys. See you next time.